there are 320 million people in the United States, 319 million of whom do not work at Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Verizon, and, and Amazon, I think we all ought to get together and decide that the 2020 election is about restoring our freedom to make decisions without fear. I want to start with just a basic question, Mark. What happened? What went wrong? So this was a major breach of trust, and, and I'm really sorry that this happened. Um, you know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Uh, no. If you've messaged anybody this week, would you share with us the names of the people you've messaged? Senator, no, I would probably not choose to do that publicly here. I think that might be what this is all about. Launched from a Harvard University dorm room in 2004, Facebook was intended, as its founder Mark Zuckerberg has repeatedly noted, to make the world more open and connected. And connect he did. A million people joined the platform in its first year. Facebook went from being a digital message board and chat room for college students to a global giant that in many places is the internet. By 2012, it had a billion users. By 2017, two billion. As the world's largest sharing and social media platform, it has, as the company proclaims, brought the world closer together. Instead of a closer world, however, many would argue that Facebook has created a world of confusion, mistrust, and manipulation. Facebook is receiving criticism again today for how it handled evidence of Russian election interference on the social network. A scathing New York Times report based on interviews with more than 50 people examines the roles Facebook's top two executives Last April, the world tuned in as Zuckerberg suited up and apologized for the way his brainchild has wreaked havoc on the world. More recently, he has said that Facebook will shift its focus from being a public square where users can share information with many to a living room where users can share with a selected few. But he has not indicated that the company will stop mining and taking advantage of user data. Roger McNamee joins me from the Harold Pratt House in New York today to discuss this matter. McNamee is an American businessman and venture capitalist as well as an early investor in and evangelist of Facebook. He is author of the book Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger, let's jump right in. You were once Mark Zuckerberg's mentor and and an early investor in Facebook, and now you're calling the platform's rise controversial. What did you get wrong? So, you know, I was a true believer in technology for 35 years. I was part of the community I got there before the personal computer industry was really an industry. I was able to be part of the development of that world, of the enterprise technology world, of the early internet. And then when I met Mark in 2006, I'd been at the business 24 years. He was only 22 years old. Facebook was two years old. It was only available to high school and college students. And I was already convinced, even though the company had practically no revenue, that it would be the next big thing, that they had they had broken the code on creating what I thought was going to be the first really safe social network because they required an address from a school you know, that authenticated your identity. That was going to reduce trolls and make it a really attractive thing. And when I first met him, he was dealing with a crisis, and I was able to help him through it. And that began a three-year mentorship. 
So I didn't initially get involved as an investor. I got involved in a more avuncular uh, business mentoring situation. I did eventually become an investor, and I subsequently introduced him to Sheryl Sandberg and helped to bring her into the company. So I'm super proud of my involvement there. And even though my mentorship ended in 2009, you know, four years before the business model we see today was created, I had signals along the way that I might have picked up. And my relationship with Mark and Cheryl was so good, and I felt so positive about them as people that it blinded me to, to those signals. And I'm really embarrassed about that. For 35 years, I'm a professional analyst, and I should have seen that the business model that they adopted was so successful that I really should have guessed that there might be a dark side to it. And just what, what can you talk about what those signals and what that dark side is? Yeah. So fundamentally the way Facebook's business model works is they have to get you to come to the site regularly. They want to build a habit. And they do that by offering you rewards in the forms of likes and uh, notifications that make you come back. And for many people the habit becomes an addiction and we check our phones constantly, right? I ask people, when do you check your phone for the first thing, time in the morning? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because for most people, it's one of those two. They don't wait any longer than that. And Facebook, Google, and others were really good at building those habits. And smartphones changed everything because suddenly those habits would be available to you in places where previously you could never have used a computer product. Once they got you there, they discovered that giving you happy, joyful things was attractive and positive, an important part of the experience. But it wouldn't be enough to get you to spend a lot of time. To get you to spend a lot of time, they needed to appeal to lower level emotions, things like outrage and fear. Because it turns out that if you're outraged or fearful, you share that, whatever it is that made you feel that way, you share with everybody else because if they wind up becoming outraged or fearful also, that makes you feel better. And so they discovered that disinformation and conspiracy theories and the like were really great for the business model. And so in when I first saw things going wrong in 2016, in January 2016, I did not understand the psychological mechanics of the business model. What I saw was first things going on in the Democratic primary in 2016, then things related to the Black Lives Matter movement, then the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, and then uh, an issue with the Department of Housing and Urban Development that basically said that bad actors could violate the civil rights of innocent people and potentially get engaged to interfere in an election using the advertising tools that Facebook had created for legitimate advertisers. So I reached out to Mark and Cheryl, Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg, in October of 2016, nine days before the election, to alert them to my fear that there was something structurally wrong with the business model and the algorithms. My hope was that I would be able to persuade them to investigate and address those issues. I didn't expect them to just go, oh my God, and change everything instantly. They're too self-confident for that. But when the election happened, and we'd already had the news from intelligence agencies that the Russians were trying to interfere, we already knew about Manafort's relationships in, in the Ukraine, it struck me that the most likely explanation was that the Russians had used Facebook to tip the election. And so I made this passionate plea to them 
to do what Johnson & Johnson did after the Tylenol poisoning in Chicago in the 80s and what Boeing should have done with this MAX 737, which is to put all of the considerations aside and defend and protect the people who use your product. And they claimed that they were protected by the law, that the law said they're a platform, not a media company. Therefore, they were not responsible for the actions of third parties. I'm going, guys, this is a trust business. You have got to recognize that that if you lose the trust of people who use Facebook, you're dead. But I want to stop you there because Facebook had violated people's trust before 2016. It had been called out on a number of privacy breaches, a number of things that the, the platform was doing to violate users' data. And so could you, I want to back up and talk a little bit about that, because clearly those were signals, too, that were leading up to... For certain. And the, the signals largely related to, to, there was a consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission in 2011 that followed a series of incidents where Facebook had essentially given access to friends lists to various applications providers. The Federal Trade Commission said you cannot share personal data without prior informed consent. And Facebook signed a consent decree. My assumption was that they were abiding by the consent decree. And I think that was most people's assumptions. And there were a series of other examples of things like this where Facebook's reaction was to apologize. And in one case, the case of a product called Beacon, where they were essentially when you bought something in the real world, that transaction data would be shared on Facebook involuntarily. And it was blown up because right away a young man bought an engagement ring from Overstock.com at a deep discount. And before he'd even talked to his bride-to-be, Facebook posts the purchase on Facebook with the price and the place it came from. And so his his soon-to-be fiancé and all of his friends find out about this in real time with an ad with a picture of the thing. He never even gets to tell her. And, and that the backlash from that was huge. But as far as I know, that was the primary time when backlash actually changed Facebook's behavior. And most of the time, what they did was apologize and they just go back to business as usual. And we, you know, I think that was not generally known. And it was really, in fact, keep in mind, in 2016, the stuff I saw wasn't even about privacy violations. It was about using the ad tools to harm innocent people. And I did, I met a young man named Tristan Harris in early 2017 who had come out of Google and he was a professional, an expert in persuasive technology and was evangelizing this notion that, that these companies were consciously creating addiction and that we needed to force change. And so suddenly I'm seeing a, a form of civil rights violation and election interference He's seeing psychological manipulation. We join forces and go out and just try to raise the alarm because it's pretty clear there's something systemic wrong. And what Tristan helped me understand is this wasn't just about Facebook. This was about about you know Facebook's property. So Facebook, Instagram, uh, and to a lesser extent WhatsApp, but also Google and YouTube and Twitter. And we went to Washington to try to alert. Congress because we were concerned that the 2018 midterms and the 2020 election would also see interference, and there was no natural place in Washington to address that problem. So we were really lucky. I mean, just a miracle occurred, and we got introduced to Senator Mark Warner 
who was the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which at that time was the only committee in Congress where the two parties were working together. And so it was, even though it wasn't part of their mandate, they were the only place we had a prayer of doing it. And thanks to, to, to Senator Warner, you know, they wound up holding hearings about it in the fall of, of 2017. And that's how it began. But when I wrote the book, I wrote it from the perspective of Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. I mean, I'm so embarrassed about how naive I was at the beginning of this. And so it's really my journey of discovery. And I use my journey of discovery to teach the reader what he or she needs to know because we're early in the story. And you have to have a little bit of background. And the goal of the book is is to help you appreciate what you need to know, and nothing more, right? No techno babble, no nonsense, because it isn't about that. This is about power. This is about privilege. This is about people who believe they are so exceptional that there are no rules that apply to them. We face a number of important issues around privacy, safety, and democracy. And you will rightfully have some hard questions for me to answer. Before I talk about the steps we're taking to address them, I want to talk about how we got here. Facebook is an idealistic and optimistic company. For most of our existence, we focused on all of the good that connecting people can do. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. You were hardly the only person who was naive, and you mentioned you went to Washington to address this, and Mark Warner was one of the very few senators in Washington. At the beginning, it was just Mark Warner and Senator Elizabeth Warren. They were the first two. And the congressional hearings that they had, I think it, I believe it was a year ago that Mark Zuckerberg went in front of Congress to testify. You said back then that Facebook would always be free. Is that still your objective? Senator, yes. There will always be a version of Facebook that is free. It is our mission to try to help connect everyone around the world and to bring the world closer together. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. Is Congress up to being able to regulate a platform like Facebook or technology that is coming out of Silicon Valley in general? I want to spring to the defense of Congress. The perception which we all have of that hearing was based on the first less than two hours because what happened was in the second hour the fbi raided paul manafort's home so all you saw was the oldest members of the senate you didn't see three quarters of the senate and you didn't see anybody in the house of representatives i would encourage anyone to read the transcript of the house hearing it I mean, it, it would be like watching a sushi chef making fugu, okay? I mean, laser precision with a really sharp scalpel. And it was, what I would say here is I'm very confident in Congress's ability to regulate. The re issue we faced here was very simple. For 50 years, the technology industry made the world a better place. Everything we did in the Valley was about empowering the people who use technology to have a better life. Google, Facebook, and some others essentially cashed in 50 years of goodwill. And they created a business model that was not transparent, was not honest about what they were doing. That was just built around misdirection. 
And no one, as far as I can tell, in Washington had any reason to suspect there was a problem going on here. The flag went up in the fall of 2017, so we're less than 18 months later. And what I can tell you is that we as a country believe in the notion of citizen legislators, and yet they very successfully regulate the defense industry, the banking industry, and the healthcare industry, all three of which are radically more complex than technology. We've just elected roughly 40 new members of the House of Representatives who are 40 and under, and I am extremely confident that on both sides of the aisle, we have people capable of getting this right. And, and this is a key point from my perspective. I want to spend a moment talking about what really worries me about this. What worries me about these companies is that Google had an insight in 2002 that was simply genius. They were doing what marketers do. They would collect data from their users in order to improve the product that they made for those users. The product was search. What they discovered is about 1% of the data they collected helped them improve the search experience. So they went to figure out, is there anything we can do with the other 99%? Well, what they discovered was it actually help them with behavioral prediction. Not so much, or not necessarily for the person they were gathering it from, but for populations as a whole. And they said, wow, this is behavioral prediction, because it's search, about purchase intent. Wouldn't it be nice to know who the people were? So they create Gmail. And with Gmail, they got two things. They didn't just forget your identity. They also used machines to scan all your emails to find out what you're actually thinking. So suddenly you've got purchase intent, identity, and what the people are actually thinking because people who take Gmail are sitting there for whatever reason. They think it's okay to have the guy who gives you email, you know, gathering data about what you're doing from the emails. And they go, well, wouldn't it be nice to know where they are? So they create Google Maps and they keep adding these things in order to gather all the stuff. And then they realize, wait a minute, we'll go into the real world and we're going to buy the credit card transactions data is from Experian and, and uh, TransUnion and Equifax, and we're going to go to cellular carriers and buy all the cellular location data, and we're going to go to wellness applications and buy the any healthcare data that's not regulated under HIPAA, and we're going to buy, we're going to make sure we have a complete picture. We're going to use tracking bits or buy people's location on the web. And we're going to go to any new app like Uber and give them our mapping tools so we find out what people are doing there. And we're going to create street view and we're going to invade public spaces and take pictures of absolutely everything and call that ours. We're going to get the government space things and call that ours. We're going to take satellite views of everything. So how do you regulate something like that? Well, it's really simple. I mean, you have to sit there and realize that what they did was exercise the equivalent of eminent domain. They basically asserted that any data that was out there was free for them to claim, to own, and to use as they wanted, right? It was exactly what the robber barons did relative to land, which they called real estate, and to work, which they called labor. They priced it. They took something that was was not a public good, or it was a public good, but not, not a transacted good, and they set the terms of the market, they defined the market, and they get rich because they control the whole economy. So they did the same thing here. I think we have to ask a set of questions. Every policymaker and every citizen needs to ask these questions. Why is it legal? Why is it not criminal to have third-party transactions in our most private data? Really simple question. Why is it legal for credit card processors to sell your credit card transaction record? Why is it legal for banks to sell financial data? 
Why is it legal for cellular companies to sell your location? Why is it legal for internet companies to sell you know, your movement around the web or even to track you going around the web? There is no reason why they should be legal. In fact, I would like to simply have us do a, hit a reset button and make all of it illegal, make it criminal, set a date of, you know, say less than a year in advance. It's going to all be over then. Everything must be expunged then. And then we're going to have a negotiation about what kinds of data sharing are legitimate and what kinds are not. Because the problem with where we are today is they've asserted ownership to everything. So the negotiation you're, ha negotiation you're having is a, against teeny subsets of the problem. You get the global data protection regulation, super well-intended law, or the California privacy law, which are only about the data you put into the system. And that's maybe 1% of the problem. The real problem is the metadata, the data about what you're doing. So it, think of this as when you post a photograph, where are you? What kind of a device are you on? Uh, what are the 100 things you did before? What are the 100 things you did after it? Were you with anybody? Right? But wouldn't the technology companies then argue that that is something that individuals, that applies to indi individuals and not the technology companies? No, I, I think that that's, that'll be their argument. But this is politics, okay? And we went through this with the robber barons at the beginning of the 20th century. And what happened then was they said, oh, Hey, it's called social Darwinism. The best people rise to the top. And if you, get, if you stop us, you'll stop innovation. What actually happened, right, was, you know, they were dominating one sector after another in the economy until they were going to take over the whole thing, until Teddy Roosevelt comes in and says, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to stop this. And he unleashes this massive period of creativity. Because all of a sudden, you fragmented the economy, you had lots of people competing, and all sorts of great stuff happen, which is exactly what will happen here. Relying on monopolists for innovation is laughable. There are no known examples in history of that working. What these guys are doing is suppressing innovation in the sectors that they dominate in order to maintain control. The giant tech companies right now are eating up little tiny businesses, startups, uh, and competing unfairly. What I'm saying is we've got to break these guys apart. Think of it this way. It's like in baseball. You can be the umpire or you can own one of the teams, but you don't get to be the umpire and own the teams. And let me just get this clear. In, if you had your way, Facebook would have to sell off Instagram. Mm -hmm. Amazon would have to sell off Whole Foods. All those little businesses that they're running, competing businesses. Yep. I, I, who, who is the federal government to tell these companies they have to do that? Uh, there's antitrust law that's been around for more than 100 years. Elizabeth Warren has put out a proposal to break up Facebook. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so I very strongly support antitrust as one of the many tools we're going to use here. And I support Senator Warren's proposal, and I'm really happy that Senator Klobuchar, who's also a candidate for president, has come in a similar thing. But you should also understand that I spent the day yesterday at the antitrust division of the Justice Department because they're very interested in this also, right? Have they made a decision? No. Are they going to do it my way? I have no idea. But they cared enough to spend an entire afternoon talking about these issues. This is not a, again, this is not right versus left. This is right versus wrong. And I think Senator Warren is absolutely correct. I think the folks at the antitrust division, I think the Federal Trade Commission has created a, you know, a, a group to study this stuff very closely. There is a rumored uh, 
penalty coming for Facebook's violations of its consent decree. I mean, I'm really excited because I think there is an awareness that private corporations have taken over the public square, not just in the United States, but everywhere around the world, and that they have acquired massive political influence, that their code and their algorithms have more control over our lives than the law does. They are not elected, and they are unaccountable, and they deny accountability. And you can see in cases like Google Sidewalk, where they're attempting to replace government on these development projects that they're doing in cities. I mean, it is like... I look at this and I just go, it has to stop. I mean, what this is, is corporate authoritarianism. Essentially, they are, you know, they're in the business of behavioral prediction, but they also sell artificial intelligence in the form of filter bubbles and, and uh, recommendation engines that increase the probability that the predictions that they're selling will come true. And in that process, what they're doing is they're isolating each person in their own Truman Show, in their own bubble, where there's no ability of the buyers, of the citizens, to cooperate to get a better deal. Is this only the technology companies? Because if you actually take a look at what's driving Facebook and Google, it is this, you know, go big or go home. A lot of that is driven by the investors and the shareholders. I think there are systemic issues in the global economy today because we prioritize the shareholder interest to the exclusion of all of the stakeholders. If you go back to the 80s or the 70s or before that, the world where Peter Drucker was the management guru of the time, there were at least five stakeholders whose concerns were taken in, into account by any executive. Shareholders, employees, the communities where the employees lived, the customers and the suppliers. And you would, it, to be a good executive, you had to balance the interests of all those people. And so here's the problem from a regulatory point of view. The U.S. economy is in this position where there are bad actors everywhere. You know, we found out during hearings that Exxon, when Rex Tillerson was CEO, was conducting its own foreign policy. We certainly know that the banks were able to undermine the global economy and suffer almost no repercussions. So the tech companies are not unique in this, but what they are is more powerful than all the others. And they will roll up the auto industry, the energy industry, the banking industry in series because their data advantage and their ability to control access to all of the people who are customers will block everyone else. So when the car companies do self-driving cars, they think they're going to be joining Facebook and Google in this marketplace. They're not. They're going to be making peripherals for those guys that will gather the data. And, and Google and Amazon, actually, in the car business, are likely to be the ones in charge. So I look at this as a very severe problem. The antitrust is about creating space for an alternative business model to emerge. And the one I want to see is a return to the traditional values of the Silicon Valley technologists, which were products that empower the people who use them, what Steve Jobs used to call bicycles for the mind, right, that, that, that make us more capable. But at the same time that you create that new space, I think you have to take away this data economy that's based on trading our most intimate details and essentially isolating us in these information uh, silos that are so narrow that we lose all of our leverage, all our pricing power, because they control our awareness of information. I mean, it, today it is entirely possible if you live in a city with limited air service and you get the message that your grandmother died and you need to fly across the country the next day. I mean, if Google sees this in Gmail, they are capable of 
taking that information, selling it to the one airline who services your town, and your price will reflect the fact that you have no alternative. Roger, as we wind up our podcast, we like asking all of our guests this question. What gives you hope? Well, I believe that the 2018 midterms were pivotal because the three communities that were suppressed so incredibly cleverly using Facebook and Instagram and Google in 2016, which were suburban white women, people of color, and idealistic young people, where they used that micro-targeting, they had a separate campaign for every person and managed to suppress enough votes to change the outcome. Those three communities turned out in record numbers in 2018. We have seen, I think, five or six labor actions by teachers' unions, all successful, no blowback. We saw the government shutdown ended by a partial sick out by air traffic controllers. Indivisible generated enormous engagement and political activism from communities of people who had not been engaged. The March for Our Lives has gotten kids engaged in a new way. And to me, the problem with all these companies is that it is in their interest to keep us in a Truman Show where everyone has his or her own set of facts. Democracy only works if we can agree on the facts. We can disagree about what to do about them. There are two sides to the issue, but I don't think there are two sides to the politics. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this turns out. People are going to disagree with me, and you know what? That's a beautiful thing. And happy to talk to them about it, happy to debate them. And, you know... I'm definitely not right about everything, but what I know is that I owe myself and the world my best effort to bring this issue to everybody's attention. I participated in this. I benefited from it. I saw the problem, and I was faced with one of those choices, right? I could have, I was retired. I could have sat back and just let somebody else deal with it. And I went, no, this is your issue. You're going to have to deal with it. And, you know... I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm okay with that. I'm just going to give it my best shot and see where it goes. Roger, thank you. My pleasure. That was Roger McNamee, author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. P.S. Podcasts is produced and edited by Kasha Brosalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.